Well, this is our uh, second week in this series that we've called Alternative Acts, a a series um, in which Jesus invites us into an alternative way of living a life of faith, in particular, alternative to the life of faith that had been um, put on display by the religious leaders, by the Pharisees in Jesus' own time. If you have been around, you'll remember that uh, the passage that we're looking at in Matthew chapter 23, you can, you can turn there if you have a, a Bible, whether you know a paper one or an electronic one or whatever. Um, Jesus is confronting the religious leaders of the Jews, the Pharisees, about the ways in which they've been living and modeling and instructing other people to live this life of faith. In, in fact, Jesus said in the text we looked at last week, he said, when it comes to the Pharisees, the religious leaders, so long as they're reading the scriptures and teaching what the scriptures say, do whatever it is they say, but never live your life of faith the way that they live it. Because their living of a life of faith does not faithfully resemble the life that God is inviting us into. And Jesus goes on throughout this whole passage to delineate a number of the distinctions between the way the Pharisees live their faith and the the life of faith that God is calling us to. In fact, uh, over and over again in this series, we're going to be looking at ways in which their life of devotion to God has degenerated into a life of religion. And as we look at these markers of what that uh, degeneration from devotion to religion looks like, God will be inviting us to choose something other. So last week, Jesus pointed out their motivation for their faith. He said they do everything in order to be seen by people. Every decision they make religiously is about trying to gain recognition from others for how spiritual they are. So they can be respected and honored in the community, Jesus says, don't do that. Well, the, um, the critique that Jesus makes of their faith uh, that we're looking at this morning starts in Matthew chapter 23, verse 4, and it says this. He says, they tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. Jesus basically says two things about their life of faith. He says, number one, they make faith this sort of heavy, onerous, impossible thing for regular people to live out. And then they do, Jesus is number two, they do absolutely nothing in order to help people live out their life of faith. That's really what Jesus is getting to in the text. So in what ways do they do that? What is it that Jesus is addressing when he says this about the Pharisees. Well, listen, he said, this is how the Pharisees go about thinking about what it means to live a life of faith, right? Essentially, in a Pharisaical mindset, the Pharisees decided that a life of faith was pretty much about the rules. It was about understanding what it meant to obey God by what it meant to be faithful to the do's and the don'ts of religion. So what they would do is they would scour the scriptures, right, in particular the first five books of the Bible, what was called the Law of Moses or the Jewish religious law, they scoured the first five books of the Bible looking for anything that resembled a commandment that had to be obeyed. 
What is it that God is calling us to do? So, of course, central to the Jewish faith and the Christian faith as well at some level are the Ten Commandments, the ones that we maybe are familiar with or more familiar with. You know, do not murder, do not commit adultery, that kind of thing. But as they searched the Mosaic law, the the Jewish religious law, they discovered that there were in total 613 commands that kind of fleshed out what those Ten Commandments mean in real life. Right? So you have 613 commands. They, They broke them into two categories. There were 248 do commands, right? This is stuff you're supposed to to do. And there's 365 thou shalt not commands. This is the stuff you're not supposed to do. The don't stuff. The rabbis, the the Jewish religious leaders used to say, there's 248 do's because there are 248 organs in the body. And there are 365 don'ts because there's 365 sinews in the body, according to ancient physiology and so the deal was this your whole personhood was to be committed to obeying these 613 commands um another rabbi actually said observed later on there are also 365 days of the year and so he said your whole life your whole year is to be consumed by being obedient to these commands the question that they grappled with was how do we teach people to be obedient to 613 commands. And this is the way they did it. They decided uh, that they were going to, what they called, they they were going to build a fence around the law. They were going to essentially write rules about the rules that were going to help people obey the rules. That was sort of the mentality. So I'll, I'll illustrate, you know, what this looks like, what this means. Let's pretend that there is a a commandment in scripture, in the Jewish religious law, that says, thou shalt not sit on a stool. Well, you know, I'm currently in violation of the Jewish religious law. I'm sitting on a stool. So I can do this. Well, now I'm not violating the Jewish religious law because I'm not technically sitting in the stool or on the stool. I'm kind of leaning against the stool. The Pharisees thought, no, but... That's too close. If you're leaning against the stool, you're going to be tempted to sit on the stool. We should make a rule, no leaning against the stool. Okay, so that's the new rule is no leaning against the stool. Well, now I'm obeying the, the new rule. So I'm not leaning against the stool. I'm just sort of got my hand resting on it. And the Pharisees thought, well, if somebody's got a hand already on the stool, it's pretty easy to imagine yourself just kind of sliding. No, 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 no. We should say no touching the stool. Okay, well, now I'm living in conformity to the new, new rule. The Pharisees would say, wow, that temptation to sit in that stool is going to be amazing. We should make a rule. No no standing near the stool. Well, now you get a whole new debate. What does the word near mean? Well, does it mean arms reach? Does it mean, you know, I can't be on the stage with the stool. I can't be in the same room as the stool. I can't be in the same building as the stool. And the Pharisees would say, you know what? I think the best rule is just no talking about the stool. Let's just not mention or look at or see or acknowledge the presence. of. And you see the way this works. You build a fence around the law. You have your commandment that's in the scripture, but you just keep adding rules to the rules to try and help people obey the rules. Well, the end result of all of that is you have an incredible number of rules. Not only... Do you start with 10 commandments and then move to 613 commands? 
in the oral tradition of the Jewish religious leaders, there were 1,200 pages of rules about the commands that flushed out the commandments. But then even that wasn't enough. They started to write commentary on the rules about the commands that work out the commandments. They, they wrote 73 volumes, 6,200 pages of commentary on the rules about the commands to help you obey the commandments. It's just insanity. Jesus says, the way you have decided what it looks like to live a life of faith has just added this enormous, extraordinary burden that nobody could possibly live out. And before we you know, start getting down on the Pharisees, we do exactly the same thing. We always have, right? From the New Testament describing the earliest days of the church, you see debates about what rules needed to be followed if somebody was going to be able to join the church. First, the question was, can someone who's not a Jew join what was essentially a Jewish movement? And they decided yes. Then the question was, does a Gentile have to be circumcised to be a part of the church? Are you allowed to eat meat sacrificed to idols? If you're a part of the church. Because some people consider that to be idolatry. Um, do you observe a Sabbath day? Do you have to take the Sabbath off of work? If you're going to be a part of the church. Do you observe Jewish festivals like Passover? If you're part of the church. And the, the list of questions about the expectations that we add. To the good news about Jesus. Continues right on into our own day. In my lifetime. I've been involved in debates about whether. Christians should be allowed to drink or dance or smoke or go to R-rated movies. The Bible doesn't talk about any of that stuff. But we debate. No, I, I don't think it's right for Christians to do that. We had expectations about the way we dress. You know, maybe in particular when we come to a place like this. We had a visitor a little while ago on a Sunday morning who was very critical of our community, walked into our community, looked around and said to one of our staff people, you know, I don't see a lot of suits and ties around here. Not a lot of suits and ties. As though a suit and a tie communicates somehow a deeper devotion to Jesus than a, a pair of, you know, bleached jeans. But that can go the other way too. You can say, ha, ah, well, I'm the real one who's devoted to Jesus because I'm comfortable wearing like bleached jeans and a golf shirt. See, I'm comfortable knowing that Jesus accepts me just as I am. I don't have to dress up in a suit and tie. They're the Pharisees. And I'm, you know, no. Following Jesus has nothing to do with how you dress. We do it about intellectual. Like we expect a measure of intellectual conformity. I had a pastor take me out for lunch once and tell me in no uncertain terms that I'm leading you all to hell because I believe that God used the mechanism of evolution to create the world. And to his mind, that was just completely incompatible with following Jesus. Right? We, we place political expectations on people. I, I was driving in the States once and I heard um, a, a host on a Christian radio station say, you know, I defy anyone to explain to me how someone could be a Christian and vote for Barack Obama. Right? We do it in Canada too. Christians vote conservative because of family values. And someone else says, no, Christians vote NDP because they care about the poor. And nobody says Christians vote liberal. That did, no. <laughs> Listen, to be clear, to be clear, in the last 15 years, I voted for all four national parties 
uh, at one point or another, I'm an equal opportunity voter, I'm a nonpartisan person, and I'm sure that puts me in disfavor with somebody. We have these religious expectations. If you're going to follow Jesus, you've got to be at church at least three times a month and join a life group and volunteer in an anchor cause. You've got to read your Bible and pray every day. We used to sing a song about that as kids. Um, you've got to give financially to the church. Now, that one's real. The other one's, no, I'm just kidding, right? If you're our guest, be our guest, right? Just joking. The whole point is there's nothing wrong, honestly, there's nothing wrong with any of those things, and that's not the point. The problem comes in when you make those things an expectation of what a life of faith looks like. That if you follow Jesus, then you have to do these things. That's when devotion degenerates into religion and has disastrous consequences. This is what Jesus says in in chapter 23, verse 13. He says this, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You shut the door of the kingdom in people's faces. You yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those enter who are trying to enter. Jesus says, when you do this, when you add all sorts of expectations to what it means to follow Jesus, all you're doing is you're blocking people from being able to enter into a meaningful relationship with God. That's all you're doing. You're you're discouraging people from choosing a life of faith, or you're making it impossible and unmanageable for them to... Uh, to, to live a life of faith well. He says you're, you're getting in people's ways. I think this is what Jesus is talking about when he says, you know, you, you heap on these heavy burdens, but you don't lift a finger to help. He says you just pile on these expectations. This is, this is true about Pharisaic religion, is that they, the reason they were going through the law and looking for all these rules is because they wanted the Jews to obey all the rules in the Jewish religious law. The problem is, not all the rules in the Jewish religious law apply to an everyday, ordinary, run-of-the-mill Jew. Some of them apply only to the priests and the temple helpers. Some of them apply only to the high priest. And the Pharisees say, no. If we're going to be a holy nation, then we've got to live to this highest standard of holiness. Everyone has to live that way. Which is interesting, because their expectations for holiness and purity were actually higher than God's. They expected more out of people than God did. Think about that for a second. So they, they have these insanely high demands and they do absolutely nothing to help people live into the life of faith that they were demanding from them. They, they demonstrated no pastoral concern or care. They never entered into people's stories, never tried to understand where people were at. You, understandably, it is impossible for an average, ordinary, everyday, run-of-the-mill Jew to be as holy or holier than the high priest, the holiest person in the entire nation. I mean, most of them don't have the education for that. Most of them don't have the ability. I mean, they work 12 hours a day just to avoid starving to death. Like, they just can't commit their lives that it's just completely unreasonable and the Pharisees didn't care and it was discouraging and disheartening and it drove people away from considering a life with God because they never bothered to come alongside and to say how can I help you walk in your faith I had a friend of mine told me a story years ago she's a counselor and she was conducting a group of single moms with their infants kind of doing parenting skills and whatnot And the group convened the one day, and this young girl comes in carrying her baby, and she's feeding her from a bottle. 
uh, filled with Coca-Cola. And my friend said she saw it and just kind of lost her mind. Like couldn't believe it and kind of started to freak out on this girl. How dare you feed that to your baby? Don't you know your baby needs better than that? And she hadn't got too far in to her particular rant when the girl shot back at her and she said, don't you dare judge me. This is the first day that I didn't put any rum in it. And my friend took a step back and she thought, oh my goodness. Here I am judging this girl for not being the perfect mom. And I never paused long enough to hear her story to realize that this isn't a moment of failure for her. This is a moment of growth. As she moves, as she weans her baby off of alcohol and is working to wean her baby off of the Coca-Cola so she can you know, wean her baby onto the milk that she needs in order to be nourished and to grow. Like this is actually a moment of success to be celebrated. But because she had this, these insanely high expectations, with absolutely no grace, you're either in or you're out, you're either a success or a failure, you're doing it or you're not, she ended up judging this girl for something that she should have celebrated and then come alongside and supported her on her way to becoming the kind of mom that she knew she was supposed to be. That's what it means to not lift a finger to help. And Jesus says when you behave that way, with these high expectations and it's just kind of pass, fail, in, out, you're doing it or you're not, you're actually driving people away from considering a life of faith. Here's what he says in verse 15. Second consequence, he says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You travel over land and sea to win a single convert. And when you've succeeded, you make them twice as much a child of hell as you are. Jesus says, you, you guys expend, and they were all men, you, you expend this incredible amount of energy trying to corral people to disciple them, to convert them into your particular brand of faith, to try and clone yourself, your faith, your beliefs, your convictions, your you know, behaviors, your rules, and whatever. You're trying to clone yourself in another person, and the times when you succeed, you end up spiritually distorting the life of that other person twice as much as, as you're already distorted yourself. When Jesus says, you make them twice as much a child of hell, the, in Greek it literally says the son of Gehenna. Gehenna was the metaphorical place of God's judgment. He says, you're, by, by forcing people to conform to your unrealistic ungracious expectation of what faith looks like, you're actually setting them up to, to earn twice the judgment that you're earning for yourself. He's criticizing them. In fact, stronger than that, Jesus is condemning them for the energy that they pour into trying to force somebody else to conform to their vision of what faith looks like trying to clone themselves in somebody else. And honestly, I just don't think that's how faith works. Henry Nouwen uh, is a Catholic priest who wrote this. He said, there are just as many ways to be a Christian as there are Christians. And it seems that more important than the imposition of any doctrine or pre-coded idea on somebody else 
is to offer people the place where they can reveal their great human potentials to love, to give, and to create, where they can find the affirmation that gives them the courage to continue their search without fear. Henry Nouwen says the point of being a community of faith a spiritual community together, is not to force other people to conform to your expectations of what a life of faith looks like. The point of being this community of faith is to provide a a space that allows people to be secure enough to continue their own spiritual seeking in their own way, at their own pace, in their own time, to become the people that God is calling them to be. Now, not that that doesn't mean that we never call people on ways in which they're drifting away from faith. We never invite people to, to rethink something they believe, or we invite people to consider what the scripture says about something about their behavior. We, the community works, you know, as we read the scriptures together, led by the Spirit, discerning together in dialogue with each other what God is inviting each one of us to be, and then we support each other in becoming it. Of course, that's a part of the process. But Henry Nouwen says what I think is consistent with what Jesus is saying, and that is the point is not to force somebody to conform to your vision of what faith, faith looks like. That makes faith all about the rules and the beliefs and the expectations, and it kind of pushes Jesus off to the side. Which is actually the problem that Jesus had with the Pharisees at, at the core. Jesus said, you know, if you were here before Easter, you'll remember this interaction with Jesus where he criticizes the Pharisees precisely because they so thoroughly misunderstood who he is and what he came to do. He came as the God of the universe, entering into human history as a flesh and blood human being. I I quoted the church father Athanasius from like the third or fourth century who said that Jesus became what we are so that we could become what he is, a human being filled with the life of God. Jesus came to be the king who defeats the power of sin in our lives with the power of forgiveness and the power of transformation and the power of justice. He came to be the priest who represents God to us and who represents us in the presence of God, who mediates our relationship uh, with the God of heaven who loves us and who is calling us to himself. Jesus' major problem with the Pharisees was that they were so intent on understanding the rules and regulations, the mandatory beliefs and expectations that come from the scriptures, the Ten Commandments, 613 commands, 1,200 pages of rules, and 73 volumes of commentary. They were so focused on that, thinking that that's what a life of faith was about, they had completely missed the point of Jesus. He says that in John chapter 5. He says this, the Pharisees, he says, you study the scriptures diligently, Because you think that in them, in the rules, the regulations, and the beliefs, and the doctrines, and the expectations, all that, you think that that is what eternal life is all about. But these very scriptures that 
These are the very scriptures that testify about me, and yet you refuse to come to me to have life. Jesus says you're scouring the scriptures to figure out the rules and the regulations and the doctrines and beliefs that everybody has to conform to in order to live life faithfully with God, and you've missed the whole point, which is me. Jesus says you, you just, the whole central thing is just to invite people into a relationship with me. A friend of mine told me once he, he heard a preacher from New Zealand and he was talking about how curious it was in North America that all the ranchers in North America, he said, he said I find it odd because all the ranchers build fences around their property. He says, y'all construct these, he, he's from New Zealand, he probably didn't say y'all. He said, you know, you, you construct these barriers at the edge of the property to keep your cattle and your livestock and your sheep in, right? To, to determine who's in and who's out. Which ones are yours and which ones are not yours. You, you build these fences to be barriers to prevent them from wandering off and getting lost and getting hurt and, and dying and never coming back. And you have these admirable goals for building fences. But sometimes, he says, you even electrify the fences. You, you punish people for getting too close to the edge of what's acceptable, or punish the animals. He said, New Zealand ranchers, we don't do that. So we don't build fences around our property. He said, we drill wells in the middle of our property. Because we know that the animals, the sheep, the cattle, the livestock, they won't stray far from where the water is. And so instead of constructing barriers, you know, we drill wells. And it's a perfect metaphor for these two ways of doing a life of faith. See, religion builds fences. Remember, the Pharisees were building a fence around the law. They construct barriers with rules and regulations and doctrines and expectations. And they basically say, this is the boundary and you cannot transgress it. And if you get too close to it, you're going to get punished. And this is how we're going to contain you and keep you in and make sure you don't get lost. You don't stray away. You don't get hurt. You don't die. We're gonna, this is how we determine who's in and who's out. You know, that's the function that the rules play. But Jesus doesn't operate that way. Jesus is the well that we drill in the middle. Jesus says, I am the living water. Right? Once people drink of me, they'll never thirst again. Jesus says, if you lift me up, I will draw everyone to myself. That well in the middle of the property draws people in so that you don't need a fence. I remember a friend of mine telling me a story about how she had a conversation with her mentor. She said, you know, she said, I have to confess to you, on weekends, I still uh, go to the bars. And her mentor said, you know, so? And she said, well, I guess you, you're not catching my point. She said, I, on the weekends, I go to the bars because I want to uh, meet men. And her mentor was like, yeah. And she's like, okay, you're still not getting it. On the weekends, I go to the bars uh, to meet men because I want to go home and, with them and sleep with them. And her mentor said, why are you telling me this? And she said, because good Christian girls don't do that. And her mentor said, you're right. But your problem is not that you go to the bars to look for men to pick up to go and sleep with. Your problem is that you don't love Jesus enough. If you spend your energy falling in love with Jesus, all of this other stuff will just sort of take care of itself. That's a devotion to Christ. 
that centers on the person of Jesus who is the living water that draws all of us to him in a way that means that we don't need to spend all of our energy constructing fences of rules and doctrines and beliefs and expectations that everyone has to conform to so that we know who's in and who's out. It centers on Jesus. It's Jesus, not religion. Secondly, what they missed was that it's love and not law. Jesus' primary criticism of the Pharisees is you heap these heavy burdens on people. You just keep piling it on more and more. The expectations, the rules, the stuff they have to believe, the stuff they have to do, you just keep piling it on more and more. And it sounds the exact opposite of the way Jesus describes himself. This is what he says in Matthew 11. He says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened. He says to the Pharisees, you burden other people. He says to everybody else, if you're being burdened, if you're having people dump these expectations, these rules, these whatever on top of you, he says, come to me and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I'm gentle and humble in heart. And you'll find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. He says, take my yoke upon you. The Pharisees used to talk about the yoke of the commandments. That was the yoke that you took upon you. The metaphor is of a, of a wooden harness being worn by a work animal who is exhausting themselves, dragging a heavy burden along, whether it's a wagon or a cart or a plow or whatever it is. This animal has this heavy load that they're pulling along, exerting all their energy to pull this thing along. He says, that's what Pharisaic religion is like. That's what a religion of rules and expectations and heaping all this extra stuff on top, that's what that feels like. He says, that's not what I'm about. He says, my yoke is light. My burden is easy. And he never quite explains what he means by that, but I have to think that what Jesus means is that his yoke is light because he's done away with all the extraneous stuff that we pile on a life of faith. He just, he just cuts it all away. You ask a Pharisee, what does it take to live faithfully with God? And the Pharisee will say, well, it takes 10 commandments, 613 commands, 1,200 pages of rules, and 73 volumes of commentary to know how you're supposed to live. You ask Jesus, he says this, Matthew 22, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it, love your neighbors yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Jesus says, everything you need to know is this. Love God with everything you have and love everybody else as much as you love yourself, period. That's the whole, that's the whole ballgame. My yoke is easy. It's not, um, it's not not difficult, but it's not complicated. It's not hard to know whether you're living a life in which you're loving God or not. And it's not hard to know whether you're living a life of whether you're loving people or not. Because you know what love is? This is my simple definition of love. You find out what somebody else wants and needs, and then you do it for them. That's it. That's the whole ball game. You don't do a cost-benefit analysis of getting involved. You don't have this martyr complex or this victim mentality. You don't have to decide. There's no selfishness or whatever. You just find out what somebody else wants and needs and then you do it. That's love. I tell people that that's the one piece of marriage advice I hand out all the time. You want an amazing marriage? Find out what your spouse wants and needs and do it. 
period. I mean, it means you have to live in a responsive relationship. It means you have to be a good listener and a, a good communicator to talk about it. And it. There's all sorts of things packed into that. But it's very uncomplicated. Find out what they want and need and then do it. And that's, Jesus says, that's it. That's the whole thing with God. Through the scriptures, led by the Spirit, discerning together with a community that is journeying alongside you, find out what it is that God wants for you. Find out the ways in which God wants you to serve the people around you. And then go and do it. Jesus says, if you do that, you're just doing the whole thing. And you know what the result is of that kind of approach to devotion rather than religion? Rest. Rest for your soul. Suddenly a life with God no longer feels like this heavy burden of all these rules and and expectations that you have to live up to. No, suddenly, uh, faith is no longer this heavy thing of um, having to, feeling the pressure to conform your beliefs and your behaviors, your practices to what everybody else tells you that you're supposed to do and is trying to impose on you. So you suddenly, this religion or, or faith becomes this thing where you're set free from feeling like a failure all the time because you can never live up to the expectation or feeling like a religious hamster on a wheel where you, there's always more to do and there's always, you know, faster you got to run and whatever. No, no, no. Suddenly what you discover is rest. The rest that comes from the grace that acknowledges that God loves you just the way that you are. And if you keep your attention focused on Jesus by the Spirit in the community, God will bring you to the very place that he needs you to be. That's what the life that God is inviting you into. In effect... If I were to describe the difference between devotion and religion in the way that I understand this text, it would be quite plainly this. It's the KISS principle. Keep it simple, stupid. Keep it about Jesus, about loving him, and asking him what it means to love everybody else. And you can just dump all the other stuff that we get added, that gets added on top, and God will bring you to the place that he wants you to be. Let's pray that God would do that for each of us. Father, I thank you this morning. Uh, because you're inviting us not into a, a religion, not into a system of rules, not into a theological pop quiz where we have to get all of our doctrine, you know, aligned with a certain set of expectations in order for us to be in you're inviting us into simply a life of devotion to loving you and to loving the people around us to keeping Jesus front and center I thank you that the scriptures point us to you and that we can dive into the scriptures in order to be drawn to you I'm thankful that you've planted your spirit in us to give us your life to flow out of us. I'm thankful you've surrounded us with Jesus' people who are journeying together with us, each from our own place towards you. And, and we get to walk together as we figure out what it is you want from us and to do. But would you just teach us to make our life about you rather than religion, to make our life about love rather than obeying some laws, 
so that your life can shine through our lives. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.